This is the Dodcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Dodson. In today's podcast, I sat down with Bill Kramer, a former commercial photographer who started his own production company called Wonderful Machine. Wonderful Machine helps connect photographers from around the world with great commercial photography jobs. Bill graduated from Penn State University and got his start doing journalistic photography and later commercial photography and after moved on to start his own production company and apply all he spent his life learning to build an impressive network of photographers. In our chat, Bill and I talk about some of the stories he's covered in journalism, photographing mobsters, his first newspaper cover, the guy who cut off his own leg, the murder of an Olympic athlete, photographing the President of the United States, his transition into commercial photography, how a wonderful machine works, how to charge your clients more, how to build a portfolio, and so much more in this, the sixth episode of the Dodcast. I think we're rolling. Welcome to the Dodcast. It's my podcast where I talk about things that I enjoy. I find interesting with people who are far cooler than myself. And today we've got Bill Kramer, who uh, you were a commercial photographer. You've cut your teeth doing commercial photography. You run this amazing production company called Wonderful Machine, 700 plus photographers all around, not just this country, but the world. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got your start in photography and uh, you know where, where everything kicked off for you, if you could. Yeah. So, uh, so going way back, uh, my, my science teacher in fifth grade taught us photography. She had a dark room and cameras to lend out and and a bulk film loader to to roll triax for us, and uh, and then I just sort of continued with uh, with it as a hobby throughout uh, middle school and high school, and uh, and then when I was a, a student at Penn State, uh, I was lucky enough to be part of the student newspaper, the Daily Collegian, um, which at that time was one of the best sort of um, highest ranked student newspapers in the country. And so, uh, so when I finished Penn State, I, I decided I'm going to take a chance on being a photographer. So I started out sort of pursuing clients based on my, my college experience, which, uh, which meant that you know, I sort of saw myself as a photojournalist. So I started out um, working for local newspapers near, near my home in Jenkintown. I was living with my parents uh, at the time. Um, and, then I, and then I sort of branched out. Uh, I went to uh, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and started getting some assignments for them. They used to have something called the Neighbors section, which was, you know, they, would, they, would, they had about 20 staff photographers who would cover uh, news in Philadelphia, all the major news events in Philadelphia. And then they had suburban offices around the city. So they had uh, a bureau in the northern suburbs. And so I would cover assignments for the Philadelphia Inquirer in the northern suburbs. Um, and then I did that for, for a couple months, and then I started working through the, the Associated Press. Um, and that was uh, a thrill because I was, instead of being sort of the JV Inquirer photographer, <laughs> I was, you know, the AP was so understaffed that they would often have uh, a staff photographer. At that, time, at that time, they only had four staff photographers in Philadelphia. So often the staff photographer would man the desk, and they would send the stringers out to cover the assignments. So how, how old were you at this point? Uh, twenty three, I guess. Oh wow, so you were you were a baby. Yeah. So they would. Um, so I was covering sort of whatever was the big news uh, of the day. I was covering professional sports. I was covering um, all kinds of spot news and weather features. You know, if it's if it's raining, you need a a picture of somebody you know with an umbrella. Uh, if it's snowing, uh, you know, you need kids sliding down the the art museum steps. Um, and, uh, and at that time there was just a lot of news, uh, at that, I don't know if you, uh, well, you're probably not old enough to remember Nikki Scarfo. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, organized crime, uh, news going on in the late eighties. Uh, there was a time in 1987 where we had two, um, serial killers on the loose in Philadelphia. Um, and they both, uh, sort of got caught at the same time. And, um, and so there was, uh, just a tremendous amount of, uh, activity uh, that was that was sort of fun to cover uh, as a photojournalist, right. um, and then I started working for the New York Times and covering all the same stuff, but uh, but 
for four times as much money. What, <laughs> what kind of stuff are you photographing? Like uh, when you're talking about the organized crime stuff, are you going to – we knew this mob boss was at this restaurant. Just go get a photo. Because every – there's all these stories and every story presumably needs a photo, right, or yeah. just about. Yeah. So what, what does an assignment look like for something like that? Going to South Philly and go take a picture of this restaurant or so, – um, So with the organized crime, it was mostly um, photographing people who have been arrested and – um, and and what would happen in Philadelphia is that um, in order to it, to make a court appearance, you would have to get transferred from the jail to city hall courtroom uh, or to federal court. And so there were always these opportunities to get the guys in handcuffs, sort of walking down the hall or whatever. So you would have to, as a photojournalist, you'd have to figure out where to stand. You'd okay. have to uh, yeah. like there were places that you could be. Sometimes it would mean. Um, running down the street. Like I remember there was a, uh, a case where a coroner, uh, um, a medical examiner uh, guy got caught selling human heads. Hello. And so, so he, he, you know, he, so he had to go into court for, for an arraignment or whatever, but he was, he was released on bond or whatever. And he's, you know, and sometimes these guys come walking out of city hall or walking out of federal court and they've got to get to the parking garage down the street. Yeah. And so as a, as a photographer, you get this opportunity to chase them down the street or sometimes walking backwards. And we've all seen these pictures on yeah, TV. You're sort of in that press gaggle of yeah. people running. So I was in that gaggle of, of photographers and, and TV cameramen wow. walking backwards as the guy's like walking to his car. Did and, you ever trip and fall? Uh, I never I, I never tripped and <laughs> fell, thank goodness. I feel like um, there's holes you can step in, edges of sidewalks you can trip over. But there, but there were like, you know, I mentioned Nikki Scarfo, uh, who sort of famous Philadelphia mobster. Uh, I hope I can say that. Um, uh, <laughs> is it famous but, or infamous? I guess, it, I guess it depends on how you think about it. Well, I mean, it, right? I, I hope he's not listening. I mean, oh. I, I have a lot of respect for the man, but, but he, there was a, there was an occasion where, um, where, he, where sometimes, sometimes the, the, the guys would come out of, of court and they would be walking on the street and you could get a clean shot of them. Um, but other times they would come out from like under the federal building parking garage and like out onto the street. And there was a point where they'd have to stop before they turned onto the street. And you could, you know, make a picture of them through the glass of the door, right, of the of the car. And and then if you didn't get a clean shot there, they might turn on to 7th Street and like, you know, go a block to the, to the red light and you would run down the street and yeah. try and you're try and the get the picture. Yeah. You're hoping that it's a red light <laughs> so that they have to stop again so that you can make another picture. So photographer and fitness guru is exactly. what it turns into. Yeah. And then, and in a similar situation, there was a famous, um, uh, um, pianist, a musician named Van Clyburn, um, who you will have no idea who he is, but he used to be super famous. Um, and he, he sort of, uh, was a recluse and he sort of, uh, gave a concert at the Mann Music Center, also in the late '80s, and and it was my assignment to get a picture of this guy who who nobody has had a picture of in you know tw in the previous 20 years, um, and so I see his car, his limo come in, and like I've got my camera, I checked my settings, you know my aperture, I got my flash, it's going and hiding in the bushes, and I'm like waiting there, and 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 like he didn't, they didn't stop, they didn't like uh, say. Uh, you know, hey, this guy's got to get a picture. Right, they're yeah, like, exactly. they're just cruising right in, <laughs> yeah. and and haven't you and heard I, out Ray Calusa's work? Yeah, and I um and I was able to to nail the shot. But then when I got back uh, to the office and developed the film, um, it was perfectly exposed and perfectly composed, but just completely out of focus. You know, because I had the one chance. And what um, was it like him in the back seat of this yeah, car? Him in the back seat kind of... of the limo, looking right at me. Oh. Um, so that, there's, you know, there's, hurts, there's right? always those, you know, those <laughs> things that, uh, that you, you know, um, but mostly, mostly I got the shot. Did you ever get a photo? And I, I understand a lot of journalistic stuff. It's, it's almost utilitarian more than it is creative at a certain level, right? It's go mm -hmm. get the job done. And as a photographer, if you can put a little bit of a fun twist on it, I guess that's, there's only so many fun twists you can put on a guy who's selling human heads. I'll put it to you that way. But did, was there a photo that you got of like some criminal that you looked at afterward and you're like, that's a pretty stinking cool photo? The way the light fell or the way that traffic light backlit him and just lit that jumpsuit um, up so beautifully or something? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, um, I mean, I, I, the, the, the creativity, what, what, what I find interesting is, you know, I spent the first, you know, five years of my career as a photojournalist and then I spent the next 
15 or 20 years as a portrait photographer. And they're, they're, they're mostly very different sort of exercises and skill sets and sort of require creativity in, in different ways. Um, what is, what's so much fun about photojournalism is that as a newspaper and especially as a wire service photographer, your job is to capture that picture that tells a story sort of in that one picture, in that one moment. And so it's sort of a thrill to like figure out, you know, hey, this thing is happening, uh, you know, whether it's a, a football game or whether it's a criminal coming out of court or whether it's a, um, uh, a sailing race. Um, and, you know, the objective and you, and you realize that there's there are only so many of these moments that are actually picture worthy. Um, you know, like, for example, in baseball, 99 percent of baseball, there's no picture. Yeah. Like you've like if there's a, a a double play at second base, that's a picture, um, but that might happen once or twice a game, and you better have your 400 millimeter lens like trained on that yeah. thing and and ready to hit the shutter when that thing happens. Uh, I mean, for example, I had a um, uh, a situation where where I, I photographed the end of a transatlantic boat race, or yeah, and so so these this relatively small sailing ship was coming into like Delaware Bay or someplace, and I um, was was on a little dinghy, um, sort of going up and down with the with the, the 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 water as it's washing around. As dinghies often do. Yeah, because because I was like on a little boat going out to try and get a picture of this big boat coming in, and um, and then this other boat was greeting the 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 bigger boat and like handing a guy a, a bottle of champagne, and clearly that's the picture. Mm. You know, like there is. You know the, that um, you know that moment where he's the 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 people who have just crossed the Atlantic are being greeted yeah. with a bottle of champagne. That sort of tells the story of that moment. Like if your job is to cover this boat arriving uh, to North America, like like there is a a, a, a two second window <laughs> where you've got to be in the right place and with the right lens. And you have to, and that nobody's obscuring your shot. And you got to so, nail the exposure. And, and yeah, you got to nail all that. Yeah. So I'm like on, like, like, if you've ever held a 400 millimeter lens, you know. Yeah. That, I've that, never held a 400 millimeter lens in a dinghy, though. Yeah. So it's one thing if it's on a monopod, <laughs> right. yeah. uh, on a on the football sidelines. But if you're in a boat and you're photographing another boat, and then you've got this 400 millimeter lens, and you're trying to. Uh, uh, line up the picture and get it in focus. So those are very gratifying moments. You when, got the shot, I'm assuming. Yeah, I got the shot. And um, it's just um, uh, another example is, um, you know, sometimes things are very spontaneous. Like uh, I used to shoot a lot of basketball. And so uh, one time I was shooting uh, pen basketball at the Palestra and there was a loose ball. And um, and this kid, Jack Hurd, who, who I guess played for Penn, um, literally sort of spun around looking for the ball um and as he's spinning around he's like facing me you know i'm on the side you know in the end zone or uh, you know on the, yeah. what do they call it in basketball yeah, under, under the hoop under the know, hoop, i'm not yeah. sure and um and he's like looking for the ball but i didn't really realize it until i processed the film that the ball was actually resting right on his head oh so shoot. i got this picture of him like literally spinning around looking for the ball but the ball is yeah, it's like you doofus it's head. on your head yeah <laughs> right. so so um you know but but to your point like there are times when no matter how creative you are there's no picture yeah um if you're photo if you're shooting a press conference and there's a guy standing behind a podium um it's a guy standing behind a podium. And but if you're at that press conference, remember the one where George W. Bush had the guy throwing the shoes at him? That's the press conference to be at because it's like, finally, something I can take a picture of. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, and, and then there was um, – uh, actually, when I was uh, working for the AP, it wasn't my assignment, uh, thank goodness, but uh, there was a guy named Bud, Bud Dwyer. Who oh, yeah, ended up, MPA. Uh Ended right. up um, killing himself on national television yeah. at a press Insane. conference. Yeah, um, and Paul Vathis, who was the AP photographer at the time, um, was able to get every bit of it. And, um, you know, so, so I really admire these photojournalists who are just fearless and who are, are, who can just sort of be there and, and just get the picture under, under the most sort of horrifying circumstances. Speaking of that, and I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that or not. If not, I would like to know what your theory on it is. Do you think there's an element of, as a journalistic photographer, you sort of feel like you can hide behind the camera? 
because I've, I've read stories and things of like these World War II photographers where grenades are blowing up around them, artillery's coming in, and they're still hanging in there taking pictures, not thinking of it. I myself, I personally, for legal reasons, I didn't do it. For editorial reasons, I did do it. Snuck into a, like a, an active bomb scene and ended up probably a bit closer to everything that was going on than it should have been. But I never felt this kind of – in my mind, it was just this everything everything in the name of getting a good picture. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care. I'm here with my camera. I'm going to take pictures. If this thing blows up, I just didn't even think about it. It just didn't even cross my mind. I don't know how else to describe it. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always wondered because I've, I've seen documentaries about wartime photographers and just from afar, I look at it and say – why are you putting yourself in that situation? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, going to photograph the war is one thing. That's still dangerous. But then even on a much more kind of zoomed in level, you're going to go down that street where there's a guy – you know, they know there's a guy up there in that tower with a rifle and they can't get to him. Mm-hmm. And there's a high likelihood that he's going to try to shoot you. Mm-hmm. And you still, in the name of a picture, go and try to do whatever. Yeah, so so I've never – it's uh, – I've never identified with the war photographer. Right. Um, I've never – I've never. Well, you're talking about like Bud Dwyer. He pulls out a, a gun. Sure. You're in a closed space. I mean, I guess you. He. Everything happened so quickly. You probably didn't have much time to think he's going to try to shoot us or somebody out here. Yeah. But you're still there, and you still get the pictures. Yeah. You don't well, just again. Freak again out that was that wasn't right. Me, yeah. But, yeah. Not you. I'm but, sorry. But yeah. But uh, but as a photographer, as a trained photojournalist, um, uh, it's just your job to sort of get the picture. Uh, I mean, we could get into a whole ethical conversation about, uh, you know, if somebody's bleeding, you know, right. do you do photograph you them or help? to help them? Yeah. Yeah, that's a different conversation. But I mean, under ordinary circumstances, where when you're there as as the witness, as the sort of historian, uh, photojournalist, it's it's your job to get the picture. Um, I think there's two aspects of what you're what you're hinting at. One is, um, are, do you feel does the photographer feel some sense of protection with that camera? Yeah, invincibility. Um, I I know I I felt. Like nothing could touch me yeah. if I was out with the camera. And it yeah. was probably st- – I mean I was thinking I was 21 at the time. I was an idiot. I still am in a lot of ways, but I really was then. Yeah, I, I understand that um, mentality, that sort of s- – that impulse to feel uh, that that uh, nothing's going to happen to me because I'm just here to observe and to right. take pictures. I'm the fly on the wall. Um, uh, so I, I, I feel a little bit of that. More for me though when – especially as a young photographer – um, I had tremendous nerve that I would never have now. I, I put myself into situations and asked people to do things that I wouldn't have the nerve the, to do now just because now as a middle-aged guy, I, I, I sort of feel for my subjects in a way that when I was, when I was the 25-year-old photographer asking the 55-year-old guy to, to do stuff, um, I was just fearless. And part of it was probably just um, sort of nervy and stupidity and, and ambition um, but I felt like in a way the camera and my, and my job, you know, like if, if, if you're the, the New York times photographer and you know that like the New York times is counting on you to make that picture, um, there's, there's not much that I would let stand in my way. Um, and I was going to do sort of whatever I needed I to do. I the full weight of the New York times Well, it was more, me. I mean, it wasn't, didn't even matter whether it was the New York times or Philadelphia magazine right. or, or, yeah. or the Associated Press. It, it's, and, and it wasn't like an, an arrogance in any way. Right. Um, I never felt like, you know, um, I'm the photographer. I'm like, I'm from but, the New York times. I never, yeah. I never felt like that. I mean, I did, um, I did feel like what was, uh, you know, frankly, what's nice about working for the AP or the New York times is when you call up and, and, you know, you do get cooperation that you're not going to get um, from just any old publication. Um, but I did feel you're talking so, from like an event you're trying to get into. Yeah, like say. whether it's access or access to get into an event or access to get somebody to pose for a picture uh, or whatever. You know, you do get people's attention. Um, but I, but I did as a young photographer feel a sense of responsibility to get the picture, um, both in terms of for my client and also for my own pride. You know, the thing about being a photographer rather than an accountant or an investment banker. I mean, everything you do, people can see. Like yours, every one of your successes and failures is just patently obvious to everybody. Um, and so that was a great motivator for me that uh, that I just wanted to, every time I shot an assignment, I wanted to um, get the, re- the desired result. Huh. Do you have a favorite photo that you've shot, if you could pick one out over the years? Something that sticks out? I mean, you brought um, up the the Penn basketball player. Obviously, that's a photo that is notable in your mind. Is there a portrait of somebody or a, a moment or something that that sticks out to you? Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think um, you know different. Um, um, I, there are a lot. There are a lot. Um, I mean, I, I <laughs> that's I, a good I, thing. I, I photographed um, um, Barack Obama uh, before he uh, became president. Um, I've seen that picture uh, in a portfolio, and I knew it must have been a while ago because he didn't have gray hair yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, you know, mostly it's 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 pictures that I think of that that I that I was able to sort of ach- achieve what I set out to achieve. Okay. Um, or uh, or pictures that. You know, like I always felt like I went into every assignment with a plan, but I tried to also be open to the spontaneity of the moment. And so, so there were often, so probably my favorite pictures are are pictures where I was well prepared, but that the picture uh, turned out to be even better, even better because because of of this sort of magical thing that happens. Right, looking for sometimes. the loose ball that's on your head. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or just appears to be on your whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, huh. so I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's like picking any... a favorite song. You yeah. know what I mean? It's if you asked me yesterday, it's this, but today, I don't know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's total. I understand that entirely. And so how did you get the gig with the Associated Press and New York Times? And how did, how does that work? You said you got, you came out of college. So, you know, I mean, I, um, I knew I was a photojournalist. Um, and, and I, and I had a portfolio, uh, even, even though it was a college portfolio, I I had a decent portfolio of news and sports. Um, and so I was able to walk into these places and, um, and get an assignment on the spot. Um, and so I was able to, so I, I literally got an assignment on the spot from the first four places I went to. And, um, and so for the, for example, for the Associated Press, um, I, I, I simply like looked up the Associated Press in the phone book um, and pick up, picked up the telephone and, and said, hey, I just graduated from Penn State and can I come show you my portfolio? And, and part of the beauty of, of um, newspaper and wire service photography is that there's constant turnover um, because they tend to not pay that great. <laughs> and so young photographers come in and, they, and, they, and there's lots of opportunities to be a freelancer because if you are the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I, I can't, I'm not sure whether this is still true, but at least back then, if you're the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Associated Press, or the New York Times, you want to have choices because if you get an assignment that lands on your desk, if you're the photo editor and, and this thing happens, mm. you're going to call three or four people on your list and whoever calls you back first, that's who gets the assignment. Gotcha. Okay. And so you don't want to just be counting on one photographer uh, you need to have multiple photographers because well, the paper's got to be printed tonight, right? Yeah, because 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 kind of... it's time sensitive stuff, and so so I was able to basically walk into the AP and show them my my college portfolio and the couple pictures that I had done from the for the Enquirer, um, and they gave me an assignment. Um, actually, my first AP assignment was memorable because um, uh, it was um, it was to cover a fire um, in Fort Washington. So so I lived in Jenkintown. And Fort Washington was just 15 minutes away. And this whole bit is just outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, and so, um, uh, so, 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 I, so at that time I had a beeper. I don't know if you guys know what a beeper <laughs> beepers are, but back when I started the, at the AP, it wasn't even a digital beeper. It was just a so so just a little bit of history. There's something called a digital beeper where where you would uh, before cell phones you would call a, no- a phone number and you would punch in the number that you were calling from. And then the recipient, the person with the beeper, the beeper would go off and there would be a little display that would say, you know, call 215-561-1144. See, what other podcast can you get this good beeper knowledge on? And, <laughs> and, so, and so you'd know who to call. Right. And so you'd be on the Schuylkill Expressway and you'd be like, oh, shit, my beeper's Where, going where's off. Where's the nearest payphone? Where's phone? the nearest Quick. payphone? <laughs> so you'd try and get What's off. What's a payphone? <laughs> I know. It's like a whole we're, history we're lesson. Walk, yeah, I was going to say, we're walking, <laughs> we're walking down memory lane. Yeah. So, so you'd, you'd pull over and try and find a payphone and you'd call. I mean, luckily, um, I was at home. Um, and my beeper, so, so again, pre-digital beeper was just a beeper and, and it was the kind of thing where you only had one number that, to call, like, like you, like it was a beeper for mostly for doctors, doctors, I think, uh, were the original beeper users where they just call, would call their office. Mm. So for me, I got a beeper and I knew that if the beeper went off, I'd have to call the Associated Press. Gotcha. Okay. And so the beeper went off. I call the AP. They say, Hey, there's a church on fire in Fort Washington. So I grab my camera bag and I race out the door. And, um, and, you know, I made this, this funny picture of, uh, uh, a bare chested, very rotund 
middle-aged man um, um, giving a, a little cup of water to the fireman. So there's, there's this fireman um, with a hose trained on this church. So you can sort of imagine this sort of vertical picture okay. of the front of a church with the stained glass window and the cross at the top, stone church on fire, uh, firemen with the hose pointed at the church, and then a guy sort of bending over to give the guy yeah. a little cup of water. So it's yeah. sort, of, sort of like water, water everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and here's your little cup of water. It's funny what the difference a little filtration makes. <laughs> Try drinking that water coming out of the hose. <laughs> and so... so um, so that ended up on the front page of the uh, Philadelphia Daily News. That was your first day. assignment. Yeah, that was my first assignment that's for the awesome. AP. So that was, you know, it's that's fun, you know. Yeah. I mean, to um, to to get a phone call and to run out the door and you know photograph this sort of news event and then race back to the office and develop your triax and uh, put it in the dryer and pull it out and find that picture and print it and then back then with the AP we would um, uh, we. We had these frames where you would make the print, and it would, and the frame would leave space for the caption. And so you'd put sort of um, caption paper in your manual typewriter and type out a caption, and then cut that and stick that on the print. And then you'd wrap that around this this um, like fax machine, basically, mm. and that would roll. And in eight minutes, it would scan that and send it to New York. Wow. And then New York would then disseminate that to newspapers. Uh, either regionally or nationally or internationally. That's pretty wild. So you were developing right there in your house, or would you go to the lab? So, uh, so for the AP, the Associated Press had a lab. Uh, so they had an office at One Franklin Plaza, which was at okay. 16th and Race. Okay. And and so uh, I'd go there, and and they had a dark room, so I'd process the film and make prints, and and um, and that's where the reporter, their reporters, and the photo editors were. Wow, that's pretty. Yeah. That's a lot of moving parts because now you could. Hop, you could Uber to an assignment, and you could email the photos in and be done like that. Yeah. So you're going to the assignment. Let's say it's something happens in the morning. It's noteworthy. It's going to make the paper the next day. Mm -hmm. You shoot it. Then you'd run uptown or into town, drop the film at the office. And would you stay at the office and do the development work there, or would, did so, they have, like, techs? So with the AP, every, it was every man for himself. Um, when I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, I would just drop off film, and mm. they had techs because wow. they were a union shop, and and they just had a bigger staff, and so they 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 did their own. Uh, they had techs that were devoted to processing film and making prints. With the New York Times, I would just uh, stuff the film in a caption envelope uh, with captions and put it in a put it in a FedEx envelope and ship it by FedEx. Wow, um, it's you know unless unless it was a, a, a sort of a uh, more time sensitive project and and then i would uh, go to the ap process it make prints and um transmit prints to the new york times directly so what was the process of shifting from a journalistic photographer to commercial did you go right from journalistic to like family portraits or did you just make the jump clean and you said yeah. i'm doing commercial i'm doing ads i'm doing what how what was that process like so from day one i just thought to myself you know, I'm not just a photojournalist. I'm a, I'm a photographer, and I'm interested in all kinds of assignments. Even though initially I was very interested in being a newspaper and wire service photographer, um, I, uh, I realized that um, that wasn't the, the path to riches. And okay. as, 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 as fun as it was, like, as I say, like it was, I got 15 bucks for my first uh, newspaper assignment. Uh, the AP at that time was paying 50 bucks an assignment. And then I went to the New York Times for 200 bucks assignment, and then I started working for Time Magazine and P and People Magazine for four or 500 bucks an assignment. So now, when you say like just backing up to the Times for a second, could you do like a 200 dollars assignment every day? Let's say. So I I I think I've shot about 200 assignments for the New York Times altogether. There was a time when when I my busiest year ever as a photojournalist, I shot 400 assignments in a okay. year. And so, um, so there were times when I would shoot just one assignment in a day, um, but there were times I think my record was four assignments in one day and two hundred a pop. So, um, so it might be a combination of Associated Press, New York Times, Philadelphia Magazine, People Magazine. Okay. Um, like what? So just like in the mid '80s, could you make? Were you making a few thousand bucks a month? Were you pulling more so than that? So I think I think you know when I was 
probably two or three years into the business, I was probably grossing fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, which is good for. Well, back then it was yeah, good. I was yeah, I think say. so. Yeah. yeah. But but in terms gas of gas was what seventy cents a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I was able to live cheaply. Um, but but to, in terms of transitioning, I was able to you know go from from newspaper photography uh, to magazine photography, um, um, especially uh, at that time. People Magazine was all black and white. You probably don't remember that either, but there was a time when People Magazine was just black and white. Okay. So I would shoot news assignments. Um, and they were usually somewhat sensational. Like there was a guy in Punxsutawney, PA, um, who um, was working on this construction site. On a, and, and a Friday, na- Friday afternoon after work, he decided for some reason to chop down a tree. And the tree landed on his foot, and he was the only one there. And so he had to cut his own leg off with his, with his pocket knife okay. uh, and, and then drive his, his manual transmission pickup truck, you know, five miles to the nearest hospital um so this was a big story for people magazine as oh, wait, you might people magazine had to sensationalize that well i mean it was just sort of like a typical um story for them at that time okay. where wait so you're trying to tell me people magazine sensationalizes stuff i find that very <laughs> well it's shocking. not so much that they sensational but it was it was that kind of story it was right. it was it was, it was like shocking. a sensational it was like Something wow like, it's amazing that a guy would cut his own leg off yeah. yeah so it was my job to like so i so i did a portrait of him in his wheelchair with his leg bandaged up and his wife and his kid. Um, but I also had to go back to the scene and find uh, the stump, and find the, the stump <laughs> and the stump. <laughs> Both stumps. <laughs> and so they had already, you know, removed the leg because apparently they, they tried to reattach the leg and it didn't mm. take. Um, but I did find his, his pant cuff. Uh, on the scene, so I photographed that. Is that weird coming across? You kind of like, oh, <laughs> I guess it's better than like a dead body or something. But it would still be kind of skeevy a little bit, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, it was. <laughs> but that was, you know, that was the kind of so. So in terms of transitioning from um, from the cheap the newspaper work right. to like the the magazine work, like People Magazine was a a, a great opportunity for me to transition, um, and then. And, and then, just real quick, so the the thing out in Puxatawney, that is, you're not only going out to capture like the facts of the the scene, if you will, but you're also doing sort of a pseudo portrait session, mm-hmm. some sort of environmental portrait or sure. something like that, with the guy who actually did whatever was going on in the story. In yes. this case, the 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 new the freshly one legged man. Yes, gotcha. Yeah, but and and there were a lot of uh, for for People Magazine, there were a lot of frankly, tragedies that I had to cover that, that, um, that were sort of, uh, un, um, difficult, uh, to cover. And you talked, you talked earlier about, um, sort of getting into, um, uncomfortable situations and having the camera sort of protect you. Um, you know, there were times when I'd have to, f- um, photograph, uh, family members after, um, murders or serial killings or all kinds of crazy things. And it is, um, you know, there is this sort of like, where does, you know, like people magazine uh, to their credit, um, I think, you know, approach these assignments as sort of tributes to these people. So that when, for example, uh, actually my very first people magazine assignment was when Senator Hines, uh, uh, Senator Hines was in a plane or a helicopter um, over the Marion Middle School in in uh, Lower Marion uh, or Marion Elementary School, and the, the helicopter he was in collided with a small plane, mm-hmm. and they both fell to the playground. Everybody in the in the helicopter and in the plane and kids on the playground were killed. Wow! Um, so it was a um, it was you know tragic to say the least. Um, That's a tough assignment. But yeah, so so it was my job to go in there and 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 track down family members and the the custodian who like ran to save the kids and, and all these people. Um, but people magazine sort of, uh, approached those assignments as like a tribute. How um, do the people view you? Like when you're walking into a situation, they're just like, get this camera away from me. So you don't understand what I'm going through. So, yeah. So there were times, uh, when, um, when it did seem certainly from their perspective that it was exploitive. And I can understand them right. feeling that way. And and from my perspective as the photographer, I'm, you know, I'm in this situation where I'm doing my job, um, but I want to be compassionate to the people I'm photographing, and and I don't want to make matters worse for them. Um, but but mostly people were, um, 
were interested in telling their story. And uh, for example, I don't know if you recall, there was a, a case where uh, John Dupont, um, who was uh, from the was Dupont son, family, do you have a son that died or something? So John Dupont was, I believe, schizophrenic. Okay. Um, and he, he lived out on an estate in Newtown Square, and he had a, a wrestling oh, facility. Oh, the Fox Chaser story. Right. yeah. Yes. So I covered that um, for a couple different publications. Um, but I follow the their surviving brother. I follow him on Twitter. He's an interesting, interesting guy. So the brother of the wrestler? The brother of the wrestler who, well, one of the, uh, so what was his name? Mark and, um, shoot, I can't remember the last name. Schultz is the last name. Mark Schultz and Dave. Was it Dave? Dave? Schultz. Yeah, very good. So I think Mark is the surviving one. Yeah. And his brother Dave was was he one of a number of people that were killed? So it was just I believe it was just the one guy. Okay. It's such um, a bizarre story. Yeah. But um and it was recently um there there were a couple of recent documentaries out yeah. about that. Uh and, and a and I think a they movie, did a movie, yeah. Movie as well. Yeah. But I um uh, but I covered that um, initially for Sports Illustrated uh, when uh, when he was taken into custody. So I so I did a sort of like a twenty four hour round the clock sort of stakeout, um, waiting for him to give himself up, and and then I ended up um, uh, being there when he was uh, taken into custody, and I made a picture of that. Um, and then subsequently, uh, People Magazine sent me to to photograph Dave Schultz's wife and kids um, before they moved to California. Um, and, and so, you know, in most of those cases, um, you know, Dave Schultz's wife, um, wanted to tell the story of his life, you know, so, so in those kind of situations where you have, you know, the cooperation of the subject, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel bad about making those pictures and I don't don't feel, I don't feel like I'm exploiting the situation and, and I just, uh, at that time, did my best to be as compassionate as possible uh, for her and her kids and to, um, you know, portray them in a favorable light. I did a film project, motion picture, I should say, um, for a, a family who lost two sisters to cancer, very, very close together, like chronologically very close together. And it was kind of that type of thing where everybody was very cooperative. It was kind of like, let's tell her story. And it was, it was rough for some of the family members, but there was never, there was never any kind of like this feeling of cold shoulder. We don't want you here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of family members that didn't want to do interviews on camera or anything, but I still managed to convince them to do it. And, you know, it's just kind of the thing where it's, you know, if you, if you just have a couple words to say, you know, if not, of course, that's fine. I'm not going to force you to do anything. Um, but it was just the kind of, I mean, I can't. I can't understand what it feels like to lose your mom, your aunt, your sister, your, you know, I interviewed her husband, you know, what it's like to lose your wife like that. But I can at least like, I can try to be as understanding as possible. And, um, it worked out, it worked out well, but it was definitely an interesting, um, it was an interesting dynamic. I'll put it to you that way. But it, but it was nothing like, I mean, murder, I feel like there's a, a very deep, like you almost want to hate the person that did this to, in her mm-hmm. case, my husband, you killed him. Yeah. You know, you did this. Um, yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty wild. So you are getting back to people magazine. So this was kind of transitioning you from these more journalistic things to um, I guess, photo stories where you had more of a structured shoot in mm-hmm. addition to something where you would shoot B roll, if you would consider it that. So I didn't really think of it as B roll. I like for people magazine, um, they would want to be able to use, five, six, seven pictures if the story deserved that. And so, uh, so when you're, when you're working for the Associated Press and the New York Times, you're, you are tending to try and put the whole story into one picture. Um, with the AP, we would, we would do one picture unless there was, unless it was the World Series. If it was a regular Phillies game, you would have a, a picture for the morning papers and then, uh, and then you'd have a picture, uh, for the afternoon papers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this, I mean, Talk about history. Like, I don't, are there any afternoon papers anymore? Um, but <laughs> there are barely papers at yeah. all anymore, Bill. I- <laughs> but we would, but like for a Phillies game, you would shoot the first three innings, and then you'd walk back into the darkroom at the vet, at vet stadium, process your film, put out a picture for the AMs, and then you'd go back and shoot the last three innings of the game, and then and then put out a picture after the game was over 
um, that you know basically a second picture for for um, either for late edition or for the for the afternoon papers. So the key day. to being a baseball star back in the day was do your best work in the first three innings it's, it's, and the last it's three true. innings. True, yeah, because there's no coverage the in the middle. <laughs> you yeah, take off the middle of the game. Right. That's kind of wild. Um, so just moving forward a little bit, I want to talk a little about Wonderful Machine and what you guys are doing here. I met you at a photo event, I guess we could say, at a now defunct photo store that was here in Philly. Um, Calumet, I think it was. Cal- yeah, Calumet. And um, right near the movie theater there. Right. And um, I remember it was it was this very – I guess I could call it a seminal moment in my financial photography career because it was the first time where – I mean I had been in the game for – I had been doing wedding photography for a couple years. But it was the first time doing like just straight jobs for other people or little magazines and things like that where I went from saying I'm going to charge 200 bucks a day to I jumped it to like thir- – I think it was like 13 or 1400 bucks a day just like that after seeing your talk. And part of what it was was you were showing these commercial jobs that you were shooting where you were you know having these line item invoices where the photographer is making you know for a $14,000 day rate and there's a retoucher making this and you got a somebody building props and and you've got your your digital tech and you've got your this tech and your your uh, your lighting assistants and all these different people on set who are making all this different stuff stuff that was like as a guy who was fresh fresh to the game so to speak it was kind of like you know bombs going off in my head like whoa 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 if companies are paying this for a big you know outfit to come in Certainly a job that I'm shooting, I should be making more than 200. I mean, what am I doing? And I, I, not only did I get more jobs at the higher rate, but I got better clients. And, and one of the things I've found too about prices, it seems like the more you charge, not only do you get better clients, but people who actually appreciate the work you're doing. Because mm-hmm. I've found that sort of the, the cheap clients – and I'm a bit of a penny pincher myself. I'll be honest. But cheap clients tend to refer you to their also – not looking to spend a lot of money friends. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get stuck in this loop where it's like I can't make ends meet. I've got clients and they don't really appreciate what I'm doing. I feel like they're using me. They're taking the photos and they're still angry with the work I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And just a simple price shift for me, all of a sudden I was working for people where I could do work and I'm like that's not the best stuff I've ever shot. And they look at it and they're like we love this. You are so amazing. And I'm like – Okay. I mean, mm. wait until I do a job where I actually think I get some good stuff for you. Mm. And inevitably when that happens, they're like, ah, this one was okay. Can we go back to the other style? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was that, – But that you raise an interesting point that I think photographers need to understand is that is that the clients see the photographer differently than they see themselves. And you have to sort of – Differently take, than the photographer sees yeah, themselves. Yeah, sorry. The, okay. Differently than the photographer sees him or herself. And it's really important to – uh, and especially with respect to pricing, I think a lot of photographers think about pricing in terms of how hard is it for them to do the shoot instead of how valuable is it for the client. Yeah. And so the value of anything is 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 based on the customer, not on the producer. So if you go to McDonald's and you get a, a $1 menu item, um, you can buy a Coke for a dollar. You can buy a hamburger for a dollar, uh, if that's still true. Um, <laughs> probably but, might be a buck 19. Okay. But, um, but the margin on a, on a hamburger might be 10 cents. The margin on the Coke might be 90 cents. Yeah. Okay. But why, you know, if the, if you're McDonald's, if you're the McDonald's man, manager, you know, why are you charging the same for something that where you're making 10 times on your money versus, versus, a, you know, the, the co- if you're making 90 cents on the Coke and you're only making 10 cents on the hamburger, why are they the same price? And the answer is because that the customer assigns the same value to each. And so so in any business, you have to be mindful of what is the value in the eyes of your customer. And so so that's why uh, newspaper photography is worth 100 or 200 bucks an assignment. Here today, gone tomorrow, so to and, speak. And an advertising assignment might be worth, you know, $10,000 a day or $10,000 a picture. Yeah. And and it's because it's because if you're shooting an ad campaign for a national brand, uh, they are uh, they're banking on that to 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 promote their company, and the value they're going to experience from a high quality picture uh, 
they just they 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 just have the capacity to experience a lot more value than than if you're shooting a little picture for Philadelphia magazine. Yeah, I usually put it in terms of for there are a lot of creative people that follow my channel, photographers, graphic designers, illustrators. If you're going to redesign, you know, Nike's logo or McDonald's logo to use your example, or just the mom and pop's burger joint in town, the mom and pop's burger joint in town is a $500 job. They got a couple menus they're going to replace, a sign out front, maybe on their website, Facebook page, boom. McDonald's on the other hand is a multi-million dollar logo design because it's television ads, every storefront, signage, menus, everything. The, the entire brand is shifting when you do something like that. Mm -hmm. You're still using Adobe Illustrator. You're still drawing paths and changing colors and delivering a design brief and, and all of these different things that you would do, five mm -hmm. concepts and sketch it out and work with the client just like you would. But one job is worth millions of dollars and like you said, because of the value to the customer. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's it is interesting that that a lot of people I think across the creative spectrum vastly undervalue what they're doing. Uh, and they get caught in a little bit of um, I don't know I would call it a rat race, but a little bit like the cyclical thing where it's I'm not making enough money, so I, I'm desperate for a job. Because I'm desperate for a job, I can't charge that much. Now because I didn't charge much, I'm desperate for more work, and it's just this this loop that goes on and on and on. And until you break it and just say I'm going to charge more, all of a sudden. You know, you might miss out on a job here or there, but I'd rather do one ten thousand dollar job a month than ten one thousand dollar jobs a month. Mm -hmm. And it's it is. I think that you're right about when it when it comes time for that that mind shift. And is that something you at Wonderful Machine? You're representing a lot of these photographers, right? You're kind of connecting them to clients. Yeah. So we we tend not to think of ourselves so much as representing uh, those photographers as providing as sort of support. a link. We're supporting them. I mean, we, we provide marketing support for photographers. Okay. So we have a directory uh, that currently has about 700 photographers. And so if you're an ad agency or a magazine, you can come to Wonderful Machine and we've got 32 different specialties. So you might say, okay, I need a food photographer in Chicago. So you can click on food and you can type in Chicago and hit go. And then you'll see a, a, returns uh, of uh, res re results uh, showing food photographers in proximity to Chicago. And, and then you, as a client, have the choice of either contacting that photographer directly uh, or contacting us if you need help with shoot production. So how does that work from a, a business model standpoint? If you have people coming in using your service and then bypassing you, you're not, you're not like you said before, you told me you don't really think of yourself as an agency. Um, and an agency is generally going to take, what, 20, 30, sometimes a little bit more percentage-wise from the, the photographer's bill. I know I've worked with some sort of representation where it's give me your price, I'll negotiate it with the client, and then I'm just going to tack on my 20%, mm -hmm. right? So I still get my full fee, and then they're, they're, the client is basically absorbing an additional 20% for this sort of agent middleman who's linked us. Mm -hmm. You're not getting a commission like that, right? Did you, did you get to see the invoice? No, client? I didn't. I got I got paid what I got paid, okay. but I, that's what I was. Talking All right, we can about. talk about that offline. You might have gotten <laughs> swindled, but um, but we, in some ways, we are like a picture agency um, or or a, a photographer's representative. But um, but in, but what we do is we charge our photographers a monthly fee. So instead okay. of a commission, uh, we simply charge a monthly fee up front. So our American photographers pay two hundred and forty dollars a month. And in exchange for that $240 a month, they get that listing, and then we promote the Wonderful Machine, Wonderful Machine brand to about 17,000 clients, mostly in the U.S. and then some abroad. And then our photographers get, get assignments uh, because we promote the Wonderful Machine brand to these clients. So if, uh, so if, if, a, if a photographer gets an assignment, um, they have a choice just as the client could say, hey, wonderful machine, can you help us produce this photo shoot? Sometimes the photographer will get uh, called directly and they, the photographer might decide that they need our help, uh, either help estimating the job or help producing the job. And so we're, we're you know, there's 20 of us uh, who are here available to help all of our photographers any way they need. Um, and then we also provide consulting services for non-members as well. Is there – like what's the system of accountability if you have a photographer screw up a job? Does a client have recourse to you or is it kind of like that's a contract that was between you and this photographer? You simply use our listing service to find that photographer? Yeah, we, uh, we've we never I – mean, we've been in business for almost 11 years. Uh, we've never had a client come back to us and say, hey, we're unhappy with, with your photographer. Um, but I mean from a legal standpoint, we don't – we're not, we're not, con if we're not contracting with the client, right, exactly. like, it's That's not our figure. It's up to, it's not even, you know, the way we look at it is 
is we are vouching for this photographer as best we can. Right. Um, I've personally met about a hundred of our photographers, but we've got a set, we've got 700 photographers on the yeah. site. site. So we, we, uh, we can't know them intimately. Um, but we are really good at, at evaluating photographers. I think a photographer's website uh, reveals a lot about a photographer's professionalism. And, and so, you know, we do this every day. We, we get 20 inquiries a week on average from photographers interested in, in our services. So we've gotten very good at understanding who photographers are based on their website and, and based on having uh, correspondence with them and based on having phone calls with them. And so, so we are pretty comfortable making recommendations to clients. You know, we, we, we're comfortable, we, you know, let's put it this way. I wouldn't put anybody on our site that I didn't feel comfortable recommending. So you've never had to really get rid of anybody, so to speak, either, where it's like this so I've person had, has... Well, I've had a couple, maybe in, in 11 years, I've had two or three situations where I've, in a way, fired a photographer, right. you know, just saying, hey, I'm, you know... Um, best to part ways Yeah, uh, only because, I mean, in the, the two or three occasions... Um, you know, early on when we started Wonderful Machine, um, we, you know, over the years, we've been able to attract a better and better quality of photographer as, as our brand recognition has grown. Yeah, I imagine. And so there, there, there have been occasions where a photographer has been on our site for a long time and, and even after sort of multiple um, suggestions about maybe you need a new website, maybe you need a new edit, maybe you need to add more pictures to your site. Uh, there have been, uh, on rare occasion, a couple situations where I've said, you know what, um, we're going to take you off the site. We're going to start ch stop charging your credit card. Please make some, you know, please improve your website and then, and well, then come there's back. A, there's a bit of it that's going to reflect on wonderful machine, right? Absolutely. If you yeah, have no a question. photographer that looks like some, you know, chip off the old block just hanging out in there. Yes, exactly. That's kind of interesting. So you said you have about 30 applicants a week. I'm assuming that's an average, um, right? An average of 20. Okay, an average of 20. So you're not just allowing people to come in who are like, I can pay 250 bucks a month or just sure. 240, 250? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, we only want photographers who are going to reflect well on the brand. Uh, you know, every, every photographer that is currently on our site is counting on us to maintain a high standard of quality. Right. And we want clients who come to the site to expect a high standard of quality. Now, certainly there are some markets, um, I hate to name any U.S. city, but certainly <laughs> the more remote cities around the United States um, are not going to have the same level of quality as New York and right. L.A. and Chicago. Because the cream is going to rise to the top, right? Well, it's, it's just that, it's just that if, if, if you look at New York City, where we've got about 50 photographers in the New York metro area, um, there's not only a high volume of quality photographers in New York, there's a high volume of quality clients. So there's just a lot more to choose from in New York. So even though we have more photographers in New York, the, the quality is, is better in New York compared to a, a smaller city around the U.S. where right, okay. where there's just not the, the yeah, depth Kansas of Kansas City isn't going to have – well, it wouldn't have the depth. There may be a few really great photographers out there, but you might not have those really high-paying clients where you would you know, kind of be able to take advantage or feed those photographers, if you will. Right, and then right. even more so internationally. So there are some, oh, yeah, so there are some countries we just don't have photographers because there just aren't any photographers in that place that sort of meet our standard of quality. So we, but the bottom line is we try to curate um, the site. You know, as we have these inquiries, we evaluate each photographer individually, excuse me, and we decide, um, you know, based on their location and their specialty, are they high enough quality uh, uh, that they are going to add to our website? Like I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to add any photographer to our site that is going to diminish the brand. Right, of course, um, but we also want to be able to say to clients, "Hey, we've got photographers all over the world, and um, you know some are better than others." Um, but there's also all kinds of clients. Not every client is looking for a ten thousand dollar a day photographer. Now, what what kind of things are you looking for? If somebody you know who's watching this is like. I want to do that. I want to join Wonderful Machine. I've got great work. What kind of stuff are you looking for? What would be the process of them being able to join, so to speak? So we have an about membership page on our site. Okay. And all they have to do is send us an email with a link to their website and tell us where they live. And we're going to look at their website and decide whether they fit our criteria. In general, we're just looking for high quality commercial photography. Uh, we're looking for photographers who have um, 
a solid presentation, you know, uh, where they've got um, not only high quality pictures, but a functioning website mm-hmm. that's easy to navigate and and pictures, uh, an edit of pictures that makes sense to a client. You know, sometimes, sometimes, especially with younger photographers, sometimes you might see pictures and think, I'm not sure who the client is for this picture, you know? Um, And so the pictures need to be um, commercially oriented. You know, we we, we have to envision a a particular type of client uh, that's going to want to hire this photographer. Um, So... But but in, in general, we're just looking for quality photographers. Do you think photographers can build multiple portfolios, like one, let's say, that's targeting medical institutions, one that's targeting maybe banks and financial institutions, one that's all about you know institutions of higher education, colleges, universities, so on and so forth, maybe private schools? Mm-hmm. Is that a, is that a good idea for photographers to do something like that? So so that's um, that's a whole conversation, um, and we that's why I'm we, here, Bill. We we advise <laughs> we advise photographers. On that's that's like probably the the, the single most sort of uh, important conversation that a photographer has to have with him or herself um, about like how do you define your brand? Mm. Like um, I think for young photographers, the impulse is to do a lot of different things. Yep. Um, and I think that's where a lot of photographers start out and just put up the best of all of that. Which you get this this potpourri of yeah eight thousand different things. Yeah, right? but. Um, I mean, some photographers are super generalized and others are super specific. Like there are some photographers who, who are just fashion, for example, uh, or just food. Um, and, you know, in different markets and for different photographers, uh, different approaches are going to be successful. So I don't want to say you should always be really generalized or always really specific. Sense. It depends on your interests. Like uh, we've got a guy, Chris Hamilton in Atlanta, uh, who's probably in his late fifties, his, has been shooting for 30 plus years and is very, very good photographer. And he just loves shooting everything under the sun. And so you look at his website and he's got 10 different categories on his site uh, and he's good at all of them. Um, uh, and so, so for him, the solution is to be that generalist. Uh, you know, all of his pictures mostly involve people, but he does education and medical and corporate and industrial. And it also works with the Atlanta market. Um, that's true too. Although, uh, there may, so yeah, in general, I would say like the bigger the market you're in, the more you can specialize. Right. So if you're in Little Rock, Arkansas, it might be hard to be a fashion photographer right. or, or a or food just food. Right. Yeah. Or just food. Yeah. But, um, but if, but the, the trade-off is that if you, the more you specialize, the better you can be at that one thing. And the better you are at that one thing, all of a sudden, instead of just having those Atlanta clients, you've got international or international clients. Hmm. And so, so I think it's a combination of your own interests and, and how good you can be at that one thing. Um, and so every photographer has to decide, you know, how many different things am I going to try and be good at? Um, and how does that, you know, like I think of it both from a branding perspective and a marketing perspective. So, so from the branding side, if you're going to, uh, attempt to have a portfolio with three different, distinctly different categories, you have to become adept at those three different things. And then from a marketing perspective, you have to think, okay, are those three different types of clients or are they all the same client? So for example, if you shot um, food and travel, those are very similar clients. And so you know, you, from, a, uh, from a marketing perspective, you're not spreading yourself out too much. But like if you shot food and cars, those are like there's no overlap on those clients, and you're going to find yourself sort of spinning your wheels uh, with with two different home marketing campaigns. So when you're talking about splitting, let's say you do shoot food and cars, is the solution to break it up like on a very practical level, break it up into different portfolios of your site, or just pick which one you're better at and say I'm going to kind of set aside cars for now, and maybe I'll either start a totally different site. And just yeah. focus on the food, yeah. Or like, what's what's the way to do it? Because I would think as a client, I might be slightly uncomfortable, even if it's in a different category on the website where I'm looking through and I'm like, I want the best food pictures. But then he's got like all these cars he's shooting too. So what's going on yeah. here? I'm not really sure. So yeah, it's true. Like I think I think clients, given the choice, uh, they would rather work with a specialist than work with with a 
with somebody who shoots both, you know, because if you, I mean, especially, I would say more so on the car side, like if you've right. got a, if you're, if, if you're looking for a legit car photographer, yeah. like that's a specialty all yeah, And they're guys who are incredible yeah. when it comes to that. Yeah. So I, I do think clients have a sensitivity to that. And I think from a branding perspective, um, I use the example food and cars because I've never seen a photographer who does both food and cars. <laughs> uh, they're like diametrically opposite in terms of in every possible way. Yeah. Um, but if, I certainly don't want a guy who works on cars working on the burger in the right. kitchen for me. Um, but but yeah, if you did have that sort of hypothetical photographer who shot food and cars, what I would recommend is have two different websites and have two different print portfolios and have two different email campaigns or print mailers or whatever you're doing to promote yourself. Um, but really what I would recommend is pick one right? and, and become, I would rather have somebody, uh, devote themselves full time to one or the other. And, and I think that that would lead to more success hmm. than to try and split yourself into two. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to kind of not wrap their mind around it, but trust that idea or, you know, but isn't there more work if I do shoot two different things? Mm -hmm. If I can shoot five different styles of stuff, isn't there more work for me? Yeah. But the answer is. There's, there's more work in one great client than mm. 20 pitter-patter clients that are here today and gone tomorrow kind of thing. Right. Right. I mean, that's the way I feel like you should be thinking about it, correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and also, not only is it, is it a matter of th picking sort of specialties, so to speak, about um, what different specialties you want to cover, but also you want to think stylistically. Like, um, often we'll see, even, even if we had a photographer who was just a portrait photographer, for example, sometimes we see portfolios where you're looking at these 50 portraits and they, they look like they were shot by 10 different photographers. Yeah. And so, so it, it's really important as a young photographer coming up to, 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 to try and figure out from a technical perspective and from a, just sort of a voice to find your voice and figure out like what kind of, what kind of pictures do you want to make? Um, and, and sort of work on your lighting and work on your post-processing and work on, if you're a portrait photographer, figure out like what, what makes you, uh, what makes you, you, um, what kind of pictures, you know, what are your people, what are the people in your pictures? What do you want them to look like? What kind of personality do you want mm -hmm. them to have? Um, because ultimately, uh, people who hire photographers, high quality photographers don't want to frankly give them a lot of art direction. Like art direction is difficult. Like what, what people want to do is hire a photographer where they see the portfolio and they're like, I love that. Do that thing that you for do me. for this project. Yeah. And, and since there are 20,000 photographers that you could hire, you can hire exactly the personality you're looking for. And so, so as a photographer, if you're showing five different personalities um, on your website, the client's going to be like, oh, I don't know if I'm, you know, I kind of like this one over here, but like, what if I hire the photographer and I get this other one that I don't care for? Right. So even though as a photographer, you might feel the impulse to show 31 flavors, um, that's really on for high, high quality clients. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for one really great flavor. Right. I'd rather be great, great at one thing than good at a bunch. Yeah. Cause I only need you for one. Yeah. Um, so what, what would be your advice to, I guess this is stuff that you, in consultation, you do consultation for photographers about this kind of stuff. Well, we have photo editors and marketing consultants and producers and, and designers. This, and this is for people. Do you have to be a member of wonderful machine to have access to this stuff or could somebody hire you independently yeah. as a, uh, yeah, our, our member photographers get a little bit of a discount, um, but we work for member and non-member photographers. Okay. Gotcha, very cool. What would your advice be to a, like a young up-and-coming photographer? I'm 22 years old. I have a rough idea of what I want to do. What would what would your advice be if you could just like sum up something in a very short space of time, uh, something they should get good at or think about or do or not do that mm -hmm. would help them get more jobs? Um, so first of all, Knowing your objective is is really important. Um, and by you, that, you mean what kind of like what kind of pictures do you want to take? Yeah, what kind of photographer do you want to be? So, um, so with the interweb, you've got the world at your disposal. So, first thing you can do um, from the comfort of your own home is just look at every photographer in existence. So, so just you know, I mean, Wonderful Machine is a good place to start, but there's lots of other resources where you can find photographers. And then, and then sort of like hone in on like, what do you, what is it that you want? What is it that 
you find interesting about photography? Are you interested in still life photography or food or portraits or fashion or lifestyle or aerial or whatever it is? Um, you're going to, you want to sort of narrow your field because you can't do everything. Right. Um, so you want to start by sort of finding inspiration, figuring out like, what is it that you get excited about? And, and then once, once you have sort of a little bit of an idea, go out and make pictures and just make pictures and pictures and pictures. So build a portfolio around your idea. Yeah. You gotta have, you gotta have something to aim for. Right. And so you go out and, and do test pictures. Um, and, and granted, there are some sort of areas of photography that are easy, easier to get your foot in the door than others. And so my approach was to be a, a newspaper photographer where, you know, I could walk in off the street and get an assignment on the spot. Hmm. That's probably not going to happen for most ad agencies. Um, but even, you know, um, even if even if you um, but even at ad agencies, there are projects that any ad agency is going to have that are sort of starter projects and so, so no matter what level you are as a photographer, there are clients for you. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of sort of building a portfolio, um, you know, getting a website together that sort of shows you off and uh, uh, sort of shows what you are good at and shows it what you, what you want to do. Um, and then just start knocking on doors, uh, picking up the phone, sending emails, you know, letting people know you exist, go and meeting people. And, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to give you a chance. And then you do the assignment, and uh, and and then you get experience. Also, assisting is really valuable. I personally assisted a lot of photographers over the years, um, all through my twenties and and even into my early thirties, and found that to be really valuable. So, um, uh, so I think I think assisting gives you a sense of what a real assignment looks mm -hmm. like, and how that photographer behaves, and how they interact with the client, and. Um, and that's really valuable. When you're looking at a photographer's website, does it bug you when they write about themselves in the third person? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think it's I, 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 I sometimes cringe when I write, read um, photographer bios, uh, but the third person is not necessarily a deal breaker. I, I, but I, but I think a good about page. What kind of stuff is cringy? Or and by cringy, it's just stuff that's really you really shouldn't have. Well, there. just just uh, you don't want to sound too self-important. Um, okay. and, um, photographing think, beautiful portraits across the smoky mountains. Yeah. So-and-so has been doing this for 37 years. Right. Or just, <laughs> yeah, or just, yeah, you want to be careful about saying how amazing you are, right. which I s sometimes see. So um, when you have to tell somebody you're funny, the one thing you aren't is funny. Right. <laughs> right. It's not the, <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think, I, I think, I think an about page is, uh, sort of underrated. I think, I think clients like, uh, reading a little, bio of the photographer or at least just some sort of text that sort of is your opportunity to to tell to to talk a little bit about what your interests and skills are hmm. maybe a little bit about your, about your creative process it's nice to see a picture of you um and um uh but yeah sort of uh short and sweet is good gotcha okay last question i like to close out every podcast by getting a little personal mm -hmm. Do you have any irrational fears, phobias, things that scare to live in daylights off of you, out of you, I guess I should say? Mm. Anything like that that you, you just would not like to encounter in a dark alley oh, or while flying in the sky or um, whatever it may be? It can be as bizarrely specific or as boringly general as possible. <laughs> um, uh, I get uh, a funny feeling in my stomach when I am too high up, um, <laughs> but I don't let it stop me from crawling out on ledges when I need to. Um, but, um, uh, I, 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 uh, I, I don't know if I have any, uh, good phobias to tell you about. I think, I think I'm pretty, um, pretty healthy. Free. I'm pretty phobia free. <laughs> that's, that's a good place to be. <laughs> I've been around people that have serious phobias and it can be, things can get interesting. I'll put it to you that way. <laughs> cool. Well, Bill Kramer, I appreciate it, man. I really, this was good. I think okay, I, Nathaniel, I learned yeah. a lot. I think, I think the people out there will enjoy the show. Uh, guys, we're going to wrap this one up. Thanks for sticking around checking out the Dodcast, and until next time, see you later. Hey, before you go, thanks for checking out my podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe to the show using your Apple Podcasts app. While you're there, I would love it if you would give this podcast an honest review. The ratings and reviews are really cool to see. If you don't think the show is worth five stars, well, let's just pretend it is. 
Don't forget, new podcasts arrive every Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with an occasional surprise show on Tuesdays. Until next time, this was the Dodcast.